Genesis 3. Go ahead and turn there. Every single time, I've mentioned this periodically, every single time that Brian does what's in the box and a child pulls out whatever toy they have, I always go, Brian, what you going to do with that, man? I think of that every single time. And so I thought this morning, given the nature of what we were going to be talking about, and when he pulled out a black cat, that surely there would be some reference to the curse of God because of cats. You Okay, you got that. I'm so glad you understood that. Um, except for Moon, of course. Moon is a wonderful toy cat. So anyways, we are looking at curses this morning. Not a wonderful topic. You're going to see where we're going to go and how it's going to work out. But I want to get you up to speed. If you have not been with us, I know a number of us have been sick. It seems like over the last few weeks. Glad you are back. Glad we are all here together. Uh, but here is where we are at. God has made man and woman, has placed them in his garden sanctuary, and in that garden sanctuary, there entered a serpent who tempted the woman. As the story goes, she falls prey to his temptation. She eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, disobeys the Lord. Husband is, if anything, there's more blame on him because he outright rebels and he is passive in what is happening in front of him and these two move from innocence into shame god does what he does he confronts these two we saw last week if you were with us there's a a confrontation and in that confrontation you see what sin nature looks like if you ever want to see what sin nature looks like on display it would be in the first moment in that first moment it was in self-preservation Failure to take responsibility for your own actions. God confronts Adam in his sin, and Adam says, look at the woman that you gave me. It's her fault, and it's your fault, God. He confronts, then after that, he confronts the woman, and the woman blames the serpent and says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. she's being honest, but she's not accepting responsibility. And so the way things have gone here, we've moved from Adam to the woman Adam blames the woman, the woman blames, blames serpents, but now in what we have in front of us, the order's reversed. We start with the serpent God will speak to, and then he speaks to the woman, and then he will finally speak to the man, and you'll see that the longest explanation of judgment is reserved for the man at the end. So I want to read in verse 14, beginning, and these are words that we have about three curses to each of these three characters. First, we have this. The Lord God said to the serpents, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your husband shall be, your desire for your husband shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Interesting. We will come back to that. And to the woman he said, because, and to Adam he said, pardon me, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We have a man and a woman who don't accept responsibility for their own actions, but when they're confronted by the judge, he cuts through all of it, all the excuses, and he cuts right to it, and he pronounces a good and righteous judgment. There's no more hiding when you're in the presence of the Lord. And so when he speaks, he speaks in fairness according to his own righteous standard, and everybody here is guilty. Do you feel encouraged so far? Not so much, right? And so you should know from the outset, if, if you didn't notice, or if you weren't paying attention so far, this is not an encouraging passage. To the woman, your des- desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I have never heard that read at weddings. Right? Uh, to the man, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. I have uh, done a few hospital visits recently. If I came to your sick bed to pray over you, and I said, just a reminder, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Would you feel encouraged? Probably not, right? These are, that, those are the words that you say at graveside funerals. If you've heard me say you've been at a, at a graveside uh, service, you've heard me say ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is where it comes from. And so this threefold passage of judgment and condemnation does not seem to be encouraging whatsoever. Not a lot of hope. At least not on the surface. But the hope is there. And that's what I want to show you this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at each set of these curses here. One, two, three. See the judgment that's in there. But embedded in in each one of these, or at least each one of these curses point towards something. They point to Jesus, actually, I believe. If you've noticed what I've been doing in each of these weeks is showing how wonderful the Old Testament is. It's all about Jesus, and we can get there even from curses. And so how does this point us to the hope of Christ? I believe you can see it even in God's judgment. So let me pray for us once more, and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, we want to see you. We think of those words that you say to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, And how you speak to them, explain the law and the prophets, and you explain how all of it to them points toward you. That's what we want to see this morning. Lord, even as we confront our sin once again, as we do week after week, Lord, let us not just see ourselves rightly, but Lord, then let us go quickly and see you rightly. Lord, help us this morning. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to reread those words to the serpent. Okay, because you have done this, deceived the woman, cursed are you above all livestock, above the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, you're going to bruise his head, and he shall bruise your heel. There's a threefold curse that the Lord gives to the serpent here. By the way, did you notice that as we read... It is only to the serpent that the curse is directly given to. The serpent receives the curse directly against his own person. For the woman, it's against childbearing. It's against her relationship with her husband. With the, with the man, it's against the ground, right? But here, there is an irredeemable curse that is put on the man, or put on the serpent. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust. 
Your ultimate destruction is going to come from the offspring or the seed of the woman. And as to those first pronouncements there, uh, perhaps growing up, if you have heard this story, uh, maybe you've seen pictures that originally a snake had four legs, and, well, had arms and, and legs, and then at one point, Lord curses him, and he ends up slithering like a snake on the ground. Does that, is that what we have here? And, and, and while we're here, let me ask you another question. Um, do snakes eat dust? You can answer that. Do snakes eat dust? You're not sure. Some of us all of a sudden. <laughs> no, the, just so you know. Uh, the, the variety of food, but, but not so much dust. Is it, are we really getting a description here of the locomotion of a snake and, and the kind of diet that he has? Or perhaps is there an indication that what is going on here is that the Lord is casting down in utter humiliation the snake and saying, you are here, but now I'm putting you down here in the dirt. I think that's what's happening. When you think of it that way, you can't help but think of what Jesus says in Luke 10 elsewhere, that he saw Satan fall like lightning. Remember, this serpent is not just a reptile, but he is embodied by the devil himself. If you have been with us, we had seen that in Revelation. Other passages are very clear in saying that this serpent is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. If you read further on in Revelation 20, you're going to see that uh, there is a thousand-year reign of Christ, but the devil is bound before that. That upon Christ's return, the devil will be bound for a thousand years and afterwards be thrown into the lake of fire. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Christian, we've been talking about spiritual warfare, especially the last two weeks. And we must realize that we are engaged in a very real spiritual battle. We truly fight a battle that requires putting on the full armor of God. I, I was listening to a wonderful sermon on the way back from a trip yesterday that talked about Ephesians 6, the need for us to put on the whole armor of God. And one of the things that the speaker pointed out, he said, do not forget to put on the whole armor of God because you don't want to be in the midst of the battle and say, hey, Give me just a moment before we start fighting while I go slip into this, this armor that I have over here. You need to be prepared before the battle begins. You need to be reminded that you are in a real fight. And so to get ready now against a real enemy, we fight against the devil himself. And so I just want to say a word of encouragement. Now we get to encouragement to you this morning. That Whatever you might be going through this morning, Christian, whatever darkness you may have encountered in your life over the last week, is that you have a good judge and a good creator who is still stronger than the darkness. Only he can throw down the serpent. You can't. Only he can take care of the devil and overcome him. Only he can bind Satan at the end of all things. And so in your weakness, don't forget that there is a strength that exists beyond yourself. If Adam and Eve could not overcome it by themselves, you and I have no hope. But you and I have Christ and the power of the Lord, and with him we can overcome he who has cast down the serpent and the devil. So today is the day to turn to him. And so you see how he cast him down, but there's a second or there's a third part here of the curse. Look here, it says, I will put enmity between the woman 
and you, and between your offspring and her offspring, you're going to bruise his head, and, and he shall bruise your heel. Enmity is not a word that we use in normal conversation. Uh, a word, well, maybe except for Ted Howe, who's giving me a look right now. Aside from some of us who have a wonderful glossary built in, for the rest of us normal people, we don't use words like enmity. We use words like hostility, right? That, that would be, if you read the New Living Translation, if you have that in front of you, there's hostility between that is going to be between the woman and the serpent and her seed that will come after. And that serpent is going to strike a blow to the heel of this offspring, but the offspring is going to strike a blow to the head of the serpent. And doesn't that make sense? If the serpent is now on the ground, think of, uh, of how that picture would look, is that he is slithering along and he bites the heel, but by comparison, he is stomped and crushed on his head. And so the question that you and I, the million-dollar question we have to ask here and answer is who is the offspring that will stomp on the head of the serpent? Is it a group of people? Is it a person? What is it? I think, again, this is where your New Testament helps. The New Testament, Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And Paul says that offspring is Christ. So here's what I want you to think about. As you read through Genesis, as you read through Genesis, you'll see that in, uh, that in the genealogies and in the stories that there's a seed of the woman that continues to go down from, from Adam and Eve and down to Seth and down to uh, different groups, down through Noah so on and so forth. It goes through Abraham, but by the time you get to Abraham, it is clear that there is a seed that will come. That seed is going to be a people, and as you and I know, that people turns into a kingdom that has a king, and through the line of the king will be a Messiah. And so that is what we have here. And so do you see what the Bible is saying here? This is the thing that I always love every time I begin the new year and I start reading through Genesis, is that at the very beginning there is hope in the midst of judgment. Let me give you a 50-cent word here. It's called the proto-euangelium or the proto-evangelium. You can kind of hear it there. The first good news. Think for a moment that the beginning when all things go wrong and God is casting judgment, even here he is giving the hope of the gospel that there is one who's going to come and stamp out the work of the serpents. And he will be victorious. He will have battle scars, but he will be victorious. The serpent will strike him at his heel. He will die on a cross. But he will crush the head of the serpent. He will rise from the dead. And this is Christ. And so the imagery that is here is something that you must hold near and dear to you. This is why when you take up the armor of God, you need the sword that is the word, so that you would remind yourself that you have a powerful God who can stamp out evil, even when you can't. And if you, need, if you want more encouragement, I'll give you this, Romans 16, 20. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush the serpents under, will soon crush Satan under your feet. What an idea, that not only does Jesus crush the serpent and his head, you're invited to take part as well. I love that. 
He who must reign will put all his enemies underneath his feet. Jesus was not plan D, E, or F. And Moses was plan A, or Abraham was plan A, and then it didn't work out, so God kept coming up with plan B and C and D. Jesus was plan A from the start of the Bible. What an illustration of God's sovereignty and how he orchestrates the whole thing. And so that's the serpent. What about the woman? Look next, okay? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire is going to be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. So for her, she gets two curses, two things that she has to deal with, childbearing and her marriage. God had told the man and the woman to be fruitful, multiply. If you look back at the first chapter, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all living things. And yet that command doesn't go away. They're still commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And yet at the moment that in the Old Testament you see over and over again that for so many women was the moment of self-fulfillment, it will be the greatest moment of pain. That's the first part of her judgment, but the other part concerns her marriage. And I want to spend a little time on verse 16 and just hang out here with you this morning. Your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. I've never seen that posted in anyone's home, right? That is a challenging verse. What does that mean, that word desire? Well, here's another translation, puts it this way, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now we're getting a different sense. I'm starting to see it that way, okay? Get a little bit more meat on the bones, I want you to remember, whenever you have trouble interpreting a passage, remember that everything that you are reading is a translation of an original language. Do yourself a favor and maybe get a few translations out, and you'll be able to have a better sense of what's going on. And I think the New Living Translation nails it. Your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Okay? That word desire, though, what does it mean? Like, I desire to have ice cream or... What does it mean there? I think to help us, we have to consider another principle. And so if you're writing things down this morning, here's a really good principle to keep in mind when you're interpreting the Bible. Interpret difficult texts in light of clearer ones. Go to chapter 4 for just a moment. I'll show you what I mean. After this terrible story that takes place, Adam and Eve have two sons. And if If you're familiar with the story, you know how it goes. Cain and Abel, two sons, and they they both bring offerings before the Lord. And for Cain, uh, the Lord uh, does not regard his offering, but he regards the one of his brother Abel. And in verse 6, we hear that Cain has become angry. His face falls. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So that word desire there is the same word as we have in verse 16 of the previous chapter. In fact, it's only used three times in in the Hebrew scriptures. And so... Is this pretty clear what desire is right here in 
verse 7 of chapter 4? I think it is. And I think what we have here is that there's a clear statement that sin wants to dominate Cain, but God is saying, you must dominate your sin. Don't let it happen. You must fight back. So now see how that's used in verse 16 of our passage. The woman's desire is going to be, just like sin was to Cain, it will be to dominate and to take over, to leap and to lash out against her husband and break the unity that the two of them had had that had come together. And as a response, he will dominate his wife. and He will rule her like a tyrant. Perhaps you've seen some marriages like this. Perhaps you may have been in one in the past. You may be experiencing the heartache of this even now. And so the woman and the man who are both created in the image of God, who are completely equal, we're supposed to be partners and co co-partners together in this garden sanctuary will be at each other's throats. This is what this verse means, I believe. And with that, there's a few things we need to address. First, Genesis 3 gives us brokenness in marriage, not the prescription for marriage. That's where Genesis 2 comes in. The ideal of a good marriage is Genesis 2. Uh, there have been some who have said that the idea of gender roles in marriage come as a result of verse 16 here, that one will do this and one will do, do that. And so we need to work against gender roles in marriage because that comes as a result of the curse. And I want to say, careful, don't forget about chapter 2. Because chapter 2 is where the ideal comes in. I believe that the Bible teaches that the husband is to lead his wife sacrificially and lovingly. See Ephesians 5 and 6. And I believe that the, that the wife is to follow her husband graciously as she comes alongside as his helper, his easer. That's the original word there. Remember, helper doesn't mean lesser. Helper means... As with God, who is the helper of Israel in her time of need. Matthews puts it really well. He says, what the man lacks, the woman accomplishes. They complement each other in their service together. And so this stands against some evangelical feminists who will say, there is absolutely no gender roles in marriage. And I want you to know that I know that what I'm saying is not popular in our modern day secular culture. I just want you to know that I know that too. So we're all on the same page here. But yet we have to confront what Scripture gives us. Scripture gives us that there was complete equality before the fall. But it does give us distinctness according to how God has made man and woman. There's a difference. And so if you want to cut through all of this, remember that there's a clear indication when you read chapter 2 that Adam was supposed to take a leadership role that he abdicated. Adam was given the command directly to not eat of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. It was to Adam that he was given the responsibility to name the animals as God had, had named the, the different aspects of creation in the first chapter. That responsibility and authority. And he even has the privilege to name his wife. You see that here in chapter 3. The focal point of chapter 2 is how Adam is created and God makes an easer, a helper suitable for him. And when Adam and Eve sin, who is it who is chiefly responsible? It is Adam to which God goes to first. Notice when you get to, to verse 22 of our passage, 
The focus, once again, is on the man. He has become like one of us, and we need to deal with him. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 15, 22, we've said this before, say for as in Adam. It doesn't say Eve. It doesn't say for in Eve all die. It says for in Adam all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. And so here's the point. Genesis 2 is the ideal, and Genesis 3 is the judgment and curse that we are called to work against. So in the same way that a woman, when she gives birth, is right to take an epidural, just so you know, in the same way you and I who are married are called to work against the sin nature that has come into us so that we would desire a self selfish marriage, a me marriage that God does not call us to. And it is here where we need to look to Christ to overcome our brokenness and redeem us from the curse that comes into marriage. Many of you know that Justine and myself and, and a group of us, 20s and 30s, um, have uh, begun doing a life group in our home. And uh, we've been reading through Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. I recommend that to you. And one of the later chapters in the book talks about loving the stranger. So after you've been married for a while, you have to learn how to love the stranger. We never really know the person that we marry. Um, the ciphers were very kind to use an illustration at our first gathering, and they passed out assorted chocolates to each one of us and said, take a bite, take, take one. We each took one that we thought looked good. And then the question came afterwards, after we took a bite, and I inevitably got coconut, which I hate. The question was, did you get what you wanted? And the answer was no. For me, some others said, yes, it was even better than what I thought I would get. To which Brenda was very, very wise and said, this is kind of how marriage works. You think you know what you're getting into, but you don't really know until you're further into it. You might get coconuts, right? That quote in chapter five of Keller's, I think it's in Keller's Uh, Chapter 5 of Keller's book puts it this way. Since we have been married, my wife has been with five different men. And each of them have been me. I think about my own marriage. I've been going to be married here about 10 years. And I don't know if it's been five different people I've been to Justine, but it's definitely been two at least. And I hope the man that I am now compared to when we first got married is better than that guy in 2014 hopefully for the better. But in the twists and turns of marriage, Keller's point is that there is a sobering reality that we have to face the other in our marriage. And they are the ones who are most aware of our sin. He says, no one else is as inconvenienced and as hurt by your flaws as your spouse. And therefore, your spouse becomes more keenly aware of what is wrong with you than anyone else has ever been. Because of that intimate proximity, they will see your sin in a way that you can't see and nobody else will be able to see us clearly. The reason marriage has the power to show me what's wrong with me is because my spouse sees me to the bottom in a way that I can't see myself. My wife does not learn about my sins like my physician does when he learns about my diseases or my counselor when he learns about my anger and fear. She knows my sins because she often is the one in whom my sins are committed against her. She knows I'm insensitive because I'm insensitive to her. She knows that I'm selfish because I'm selfish against her. 
In my life, I don't, know, I, have, I don't know of anything that is more confrontational against my own sin than marriage. And by the way, for those of you who are single and are going, okay, this has nothing to do with me, I want you to think about this. Here's something I have noticed amongst good single friends who I love and care for dearly. Of course, none of you in here, but people elsewhere that I know uh, from, since becoming from, uh, before coming to Bethesda, is that if you are not married, it's very easy, easy to insulate yourself. It's very easy to do everything your own way. It's very easy to put a wall up around others. And you can have all these blind spots. And you, haven't we seen that guy that's disheveled? Haven't we seen that guy that's a wreck? And we go, man, if he was, he was married, she would tell him about himself, right? Think about that. And I think of one of my friends and I think, brother, the thing that would help you the most if you're going to be in singleness as, Lord, as, as long as the Lord calls you to, is that if you're not going to be married and have someone tell you about yourself, is that you need a good Christian friend group to be able to speak truth into your life, to be iron that sharpens iron, to be able to refine you, that you give access to so that they would say the things to you that nobody else is able to say. And so we have to surround ourselves with people, married or not, who are able to speak, that we give access into our life to speak a word of correction. Otherwise, we remain in our sin. And so what do we do, though, if we're going to confront the selfishness that comes up to the surface that Genesis 3.16 talks about? I think the answer is you have to look to Christ. Of course you know I'm going to say that. But I love the way that Keller puts it. You may feel like your spouse is crucifying you even right now. But your sins really did put Jesus on the cross, and yet he still forgave you for what you did. And so the power of the cross that endures, that undoes Genesis 3.16, it is that which gives us the grace. Grace. Christ has forgiven the unforgivable in you, so you can forgive the unforgivable in your spouse. Christ has given you a new status by grace in him so that you don't have to find the validation in your spouse that only Jesus can give you. And you think of those words of Ephesians 5 that I quote often. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church with splendor, without spot or wrinkle. When we are married, for those of us that God has called to marriage, we are doing a small version of this, refining one another so that we would grow in holiness. When you have a Christian marriage, you realize that you and your spouse have been placed in each other's lives, not just for your own satisfaction, but to refine one another so you would grow in holiness and you would be accomplishing what Jesus is accomplishing in his church as he prepares us for that last day. We turn now to the man. God speaks to the man, Adam, and he speaks these words in verse 17. And to the Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Don't eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you're going to eat of it all of the days of your lives, thorns and thistles. It shall break forth for you. By the way, I don't even need you to go any further. I could just stop right there. Do you notice how poetic this is? This is, the way, this is the way Hebrew poetry works. It doesn't just say one thing one time. It says it several different ways, so you really get the point. 
And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Eve was deceived, but Adam rebelled. And so God's judgment is twofold as well for him. Lifelong, tireless labor as he works the ground, and then secondly, death, dust to dust. Cursed is the ground because of you. Adam, you were made to work in the garden. You were made to work. Work in itself isn't a bad thing. If you're always living for the weekend, you might have missed something good that God has actually given you. Work in itself is not a bad thing. But Adam brings sin into the world and distorts it. And so if there was ever a passage, my goodness, when you read this, if there was ever a passage that the farmer could relate to, this is it right here, right here. It seems that during harvest season, when when I'm inconveniencing Wes, chairman of our elders, and I'm calling him, every third or fourth time we have a phone call, something is broken on his farm. Something's not working. He's fixing it. Something didn't go the way he had hoped, right? The weather this, the weather that. And so I want to say, if you're in the agricultural business, and you're just, maybe you're just here so that I would help you temper your expectations in case you have never come to grips with reality. You live in a post-fall world. It is always going to be difficult. There may be seasons of reprieve, but there's always going to be something that is breaking down, something that needs to be fixed, something that is not working out. We know this is true not just in farming. We know this is true in all other aspects of work. Work is hard no matter what you do. It's never going to go according to plan. I had a brother last week who said, Pastor, Pastor, your meetings are always the longest. And I just want to say to that brother, it's just a result of the fall. Don't blame me, okay? <laughs> Work is hard. It's hard for a reason. It's because of what we have here. And so let me ask you, or let me ask you this. Why do work in your life that isn't worth it? Uh, I was in Hillsborough yesterday uh, at Tabor College, and uh, President Jansen, the president of the school, um, is a, a very intelligent man, um, came from Cal Poly, and uh, PhD in computer science, made apps for Android, all of that. And, and he was telling us uh, about a well-known, in the tech world, CEO and founder of uh, NVIDIA, his name is uh, Jensen Hong. Jensen isn't his real name. It's just his American name, Jensen um, Hong. And he's worth about 40 to $50 billion, not million, billion dollars. And he was being interviewed last year, and I, I went home last night, and I, and I watched the video of the interview. And he was being interviewed by someone who said, if you could go back 30 years, and you're sitting in that Denny's with the two other friends of yours who were uh, working on this startup, uh, what would you say to yourself? What would you, what would you be talking about? And his reply shocked the interviewer who was expecting some nugget of wisdom, some sort of um, practical piece of advice. And his response was this. He said, I wouldn't do it. He has $40, $50 billion, and he said it wasn't worth it. I wouldn't do it. At the time, if we realized the pain and suffering and just how vulnerable you're going to feel and the challenges you're going to endure... I don't think anybody would ever start a company. He could look back and he said, the 40, 50 billion dollars, it wasn't worth it for everything that he went through. And he wouldn't do it again if he had the chance. 
Work is hard in a post-fall world, even though you and I are called to it. By the way, we will be redeemed at the end of all things to work in the life to come. So work in itself isn't bad. We are the ones in this world that are the problem. And so I want to ask you, are you, doing, are you beginning a career right now? Are you thinking about a career right now? And you've never asked the question, is this actually what God is calling me to? My, hope, my concern for you is that you would not waste your life for 30 to 40 years, get to the end of life and say, it wasn't worth it. Work is going to be difficult one way or the other. Better to do what God's actually called you to do. I heard another pastor say yesterday in these meetings, one of them said, the highest calling, the best job, the most important job is that of being a pastor. And I have to be honest with you, when I heard that, I, I, I kind of grit my teeth a little bit because I don't know if I would say that's true. I don't know if I could point to a Bible verse that would say, what Aaron does is more important than, than what you do. I don't know if I would say that. What's the most important job for all of us? Answer, it is the work that God has called you to do. And it may be different than the work that God has called me to do. But for all of us, it should be done for his glory. So choose wisely and ask the Lord, what are you calling me to do for your namesake? That's work. And that's how it's cursed. That's how we can think about redeeming it. But what about death? That's the last part. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, a biting bit of irony. God had formed this man out of the dust and breathed life into him. And now he's going to return back to the very ground that he is going to be responsible for taking care of until he's dead. That doesn't sound like a lot of encouragement. But let me give you some hope. Thousands of years after this horrible incident that took place, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he walks up to his disciples in John 20, 21. And he walks up to them and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. God breathed life into the first Adam, but he brought death into the world. But the second Adam has breathed the Holy Spirit on us so that we would have eternal life for all of our days. Do you fear death? then turn to the one that can give you the Holy Spirit, breathe life into you so you can be born again. You don't have to fear death's door. Do you, do you feel the sting of death this morning? Then turn to the one who says, believe in me, and yet though you shall die, yet you shall live. The thorns and the thistles of what Adam has brought into this world sting you this morning, and whatever you have brought in here, good news, there is one who has worn a crown of thorns in your place for you and is going to redeem all of this. He took our place at Calvary. And so the hope that we have despite these curses is that we serve Jesus who crushes the head of the serpent, redeems marriage by using it to make us holy, and who breathes fresh life in us because of the Holy Spirit. That is what we have here. And so as we close this morning, here's my encouragement for you. Next week, we will be done with these first three chapters of the Bible. I want to encourage you to read the last part of what comes next and see if you can find the hope there. But until then, let's look at the full witness of Scripture and know that despite judgments, 
we have the grace that comes from being in Christ Jesus, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in death, whether it's in work, whether it's in whatever sphere of life that God has called us to. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.